If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. That's where we'll be this morning as we begin a new series looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, Before I read our text this morning, I do want to take uh, this opportunity just to say thank you to the congregation for your prayers and your support uh, for us over the past uh, almost three weeks now as we have suffered and are suffering with those who are really suffering a whole deal more. Um, And coming back and getting back into the swing of things last week with Easter, um, we just thank you for your prayers for that and your patience and your grace with us as we figure out which way is up and continue to, to, to mourn and grieve um, those who were really, really affected by what happened in Nashville, um, who, if you don't know, just were close friends of ours. Um, so we just ask that you co- continue to pray for us and continue to lift us up, and I'm thankful for the emails and the things that are sent. Uh, we have felt that, and I just wanted to say thank you for that as a church. It means so much uh, to us. So... Um, with that, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word found in 1 Kings chapter 17. <clears throat> and as we begin our new series, this will feel a little bit like an introduction. Um, and especially if you're not, too, or not that familiar with this book of the Bible in the Old Testament, um, and more specifically, these two prophets. Um, so beginning in verse 7, Uh, Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that being Elijah, and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. 
And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we look at your word in the book of Kings, that you would graciously pour out your spirit as you promised to do, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, that you would change us by your spirit, we ask. For your glory we pray, amen. Well, what do you need when you have everything. What do you need when you have everything? As we are sort of saying about this series, this is a a post-Easter series that we're kind of looking at it in view of life after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we, of course, celebrate every day as Christians, but we gave special attention to it last week. And I'm even thinking about those first Christians, the week after Jesus resurrected, and of course in the days and the weeks to come when he ascends and his spirit is given, what is it that they need when they have everything? And we would all agree, you have everything (laughs) in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That is the culmination of God's promises. That is, that is, it's all done in one sense until he returns. And so what would you say to those Christians And as we think about that, we can begin to think about that even in our own lives, right? What is it that we might need, especially as Easter people um, who certainly have everything uh, in the Lord that we would possibly need? What is it that we might need as well? And uh, when we have everything, and I know certainly for me, um, I can, it can be uh, very true that as I come out of a Sunday, especially as a Sunday such as last Sunday, Um, being encouraged in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, remembering that the tomb is empty and what that ultimately means, that Monday still brings some of those same things that cause me to doubt. Monday still brings some of those things that cause me to even wonder if God is really real. Um, Perhaps it's uh, sin that continues to rear its head at times in my life that just won't seem to go away. Uh, Maybe it's those arrows that Satan is shooting that tend to break through that shield or perhaps I just don't even have the strength to put that shield up as we looked at in Ephesians. Maybe it's just your circumstances. Is this really what is supposed to happen to God's people? And because of all this, right, even in light of the resurrection, in light of what Jesus has done, and in light of being told that we have everything in Christ, what is it that we might need when we have everything And the answer to that is grace to persevere. Grace to persevere. And you might find yourself in the same place, right? Yeah, I know that Jesus resurrected and I know that that all the promises of God find their yay and amen in him. But man, life is tough. And perhaps what you're thinking is the same thing I'm thinking as to what 
one needs for the person who has everything is grace to persevere. And I would say that's exactly what this post-Easter community, uh, the first post-Easter community needed was grace to persevere, and it's what we need to persevere. And I'm not sure if the place that you thought to look as we consider what it means uh, to to have grace to persevere in the Christian life, I'm not sure if you thought the first place to look for what that might be is in the book of Kings, but that's that's where we're going to find it uh, over the next nine weeks as we look at the life of Elijah and Elisha. who uh, come to God's people at a time, uh, as we'll see this morning, that for lack of better phrase, they have everything in the promises of God. What they need is is grace to persevere in light of what is going on around them. And that's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to see it in three ways as we look at this text. Again, sort of as an introduction, but I, I want us to see the problem in the passage, which is really the problem for this series I want us to see the power in the passage, which is what we'll continue to come back to in this series, which is really the grace of God to his people who don't deserve it. And I want us to see the promise in the passage as we look at this introduction to the life of Elijah. So the problem, the power, and the promise by way of introduction. So let's take that first one, the problem in the passage. As chapter 17 begins, it is almost out of nowhere if you're reading from 16 into 17 and really with no warning that Elijah shows up. I mean, he shows up unannounced. Uh, We don't know much about him at this point. We actually still don't know for sure where uh, Tishbe in Gilead is, if I'm saying that correctly. And some of that is kind of the point for us as we begin this new series and as we read this account in the Kings. Elijah does not come from wealth. He doesn't come from stature. He doesn't come from some place that we should recognize who he is. He doesn't show up as someone and immediately we think, oh, wonderful, Elijah is here. And often this is the way that God works. No, actually he very much shows up like a John the Baptist in the New Testament who comes in unannounced with words of declaration um, and of course, we might remember those words from John the Baptist, but what are, what are Elijah's words of declaration? And it's back there in verse 1 as he comes to the king of Israel at this point in the northern kingdom. That's where our um, series will take place for Elijah and Elisha. And he comes to a king named King Ahab. And he says this to King Ahab, and we didn't read it, but I'll read it for you here. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a very strange thing to say to somebody. Um, If you were to go up to somebody after church, perhaps somebody you don't know in the grocery store, out to lunch, and you were to go up to them and say, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's when like the white minivan pulls up and two, two people and like scrubs get out and say, you need to come with us. And I say that to kind of begin to help us enter into this passage of sorts and how it comes to us. It is it's very strange. This is all we get. And then Elijah leaves, actually. And that's what we get in, in verse 2 or 3. This is all he says, at least all that we're given. And then by verse 3, we are told that the Lord, word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and it tells him to depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from that brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Presumably, Elijah uh, must hide himself because of what the king, King Ahab, might do to him. But by verses 5 and 6, tell us that this is what Elijah did, and sure enough, God provided for him. 
gave him water by the brook. Um, Ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and at night, and all is well until we get to that verse 7. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. By verse 7, a drought has come on the land as Elijah had said would happen to King Ahab, and this drought is actually an indicator that something isn't right. If you're a Jew reading this, uh, this account, right, if you're, if you're, if you're noticing that, that this is God's people in his land, these types of things shouldn't be happening if all is well, at least according to God's promises. If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll read over and over, and we'll look at some of those passages in a minute, that part of God's covenant with his people is that with obedience comes blessing. And with the obedience of God's people will come plenty of rain for your harvests and for your crops. But with disobedience comes curses. And one of those curses is actually that of a drought. And so as we're reading this, as we're thinking about perhaps maybe those who would be reading this as well, our first instinct should be to sort of stop for a second as this drought comes and wonder, is everything okay? And the reality is, is that everything is not okay. And this gets to the problem uh, surrounding the context of of 1 Kings 17, uh, but more importantly, why Elijah was sent in the first place. And to sort of hit at some of that context this morning, we won't do all of it this morning, but we'll we'll, um, we'll give little bits and pieces as the series goes on. Beginning with Ahab's father, Omri there, back in chapter 16, and we could actually go back way further than this, we read uh, of Omri going around and essentially looking to be a player on the national stage by making alliances with other nations, hoping to secure protection from them, from other kings and other nations that surround them. And as as we learn, Omri makes an alliance with the king of Sidonia, on the Mediterranean Sea there. And when, he, when agreements like this were made, um, it, it was custom that in order to seal that agreement, they would offer their children in marriage to join those families. And so in this case, Omri offers his son Ahab to be married to the king's daughter, which would be Jezebel, whom we will get into later in the weeks to come. Ahab and Jezebel get married, and in the last paragraph of chapter 16, we read that the first thing she does essentially is bring her gods into Israel's land, the promised land. Raymond Dillard writes it this way. He says, Omri concluded his alliance with Ethbal of Tyre by arranging the marriage of his son Ahab and the Tyranian princess Jezebel When Jezebel arrived in Israel, she was not content to worship her own deity in private. She sought to remove the worship of Yahweh from Israel and to substitute the worship of foreign deities. Jezebel included in her entourage 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, the queen mother of the gods. In other words, Apart from her family, she's bringing with her almost a thousand people dedicated and devoted to to idolatry, to pagan worship. You don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to know that this is a problem, especially if we take in all of the history up to this point of how God has promised this land to his people um, as, as he has brought them in and as he has given them the terms of the covenant that if you obey and continue to obey, all will go well for you. But there are curses for disobedience as well. 
If we look at Leviticus chapter 26, we can read in some of these. He says to, to, to Israel, this is way before they enter the land. He says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses one to four speaks about how Israel was to live in the land and how they were to clear out all of the pagan worship and the idols that were there because the land would function as a real physical dwelling place of God and thus a holy land. And so to contaminate, right, uh, the land itself with other idols, with other gods, is tantamount to idolatry if you are married and you bring somebody else into that bed. Deuteronomy will write, these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord God your fathers has given you to possess. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess uh, serve their gods. And I could go on and on about how he is, uh, how, what, what obedience looks like, what faith looks like, lo, looks like here is obedience to clear out all of this pagan idolatry. In large part because a lot of this idolatry led other folks to actually burning their own sons and daughters to their gods. This is how pagan it is, All right? We think about this as a pluralistic, and a pluralistic mindset, you know, right? Lots of gods out there, everybody's got their own right to pick theirs and it's cool and whatever works for you works for me. That's a pluralistic society, right? This is, this is that in a way, but this is, <laughs> if anybody was burning their sons or daughters, over on Route 1 because this was their truth, I'm sure we'd have a problem with it, okay? This is next level um, evil and paganism. And so I sort of eddy there a little bit because some of us, when we get into this place where, where God is clearing out this land, right, there's a lot of problems there for us and it needs to be addressed and I'm happy to talk about that. But let's just be really clear about what's happening here. And I think that for some of us, all of us would agree that it's good that this stops. I don't think we're for the sacrifice of children. Um, I digress. Uh, to continue on, this is all of what should be in the mindset of Israel. And, and as they come into the land, going back to Joshua, and as we, we, we go throughout into the kings and we get to that point of King David, it's, it is a high watermark of his people and what he has continued to do for them because they've obeyed him, even in his repentance, Things are going well. But it's like after that, <laughs> things begin to unravel. Such to the point that we are here where I just read to you that the king of Israel is marrying a king of another nation, thus of another God. And it's not so much that they're getting married and he's moving out to be with her and thus is taking his, uh, you know, his his new stance on God into, uh, you know, into another direction. She's coming to him. They are bringing in their own gods and they are tearing down the, 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 the places of worship for Yahweh in order to put up worship for Baal. I could go on and on and on about this, but I think it's, you know, suffice it to say that this is the problem in the passage. It is idolatry. In its clearest form, it is the worship of other gods. And as we continue in this series, we're going to look more about what that looks like for us. You know, we don't 
build temples of other fake gods. We don't come in there and worship them, but we have other gods. <laughs> we have other idols, and we need to recognize that our hearts are the same. And what we see here, though, as it pertains to God's people, is that this is something that has gone to a level that has caused God to make good on his word, actually, by bringing curses to his people where disobedience lies, as it pertains to Israel. And that's what we read about in verse 7, where this drought comes in, and that's why this drought is here. It is an indication of a sick heart of a people who are not following the Lord. This is the first point. It's the problem in the passage. Let's move on to the power. So what happens here, and maybe more specifically, what happens to Elijah? God sends him to a Gentile, widowed woman who has absolutely nothing to offer him, right? Don't you just love the Old Testament? God says to him in verse 9, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, as we continue on into verses 10 to 16, Elijah goes there, and he finds this widow, and they are both uh, provided for here, including her son, by a single jar of flour and a jug of oil. And what we read about is that this flour and this oil, it never actually runs out. This is God's provision and care for Elijah that in the midst of a drought, God is true to his word to provide for him. But there is something else going on here that we need to draw our attention to. And that is this picture of faith that this widow displays. And this is the power in the passage. Looking back at verse 10, we read, So he arose and he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And she's gathering these sticks uh, to go uh, make a meal for her son. But as she's doing this, Elijah says, Will you bring me some water? I don't know about you, but if I'm addressing this, if I'm, if I'm taking it in this scene as a whole, right, this woman has nothing. Uh, she has one son. She says she's going to go make a meal so that her son and, and, him, and her can eat and die. And Elijah, who I think knows this or knows something about this, has the audacity to say, hey, will you bring me some water? And then as she tells him this, as the text goes on, where he finally for sure is aware of this, he then says, oh, well, will you bring me some bread first, right? This is the stuff divorces are made of if you're married in here, right? This picture is bleak. This woman has nothing. She has a son she is trying to keep alive. And when Elijah shows up, right, the little woman is gathering her sticks and it's just, there's nothing here, but there's something actually to the point of Elijah asking her for this and it's the demonstration of faith that we see in her. And it's pretty remarkable because what does she say? Verse 15, and she went and did as Elijah said. If you're going through my Bible, that verse is not highlighted, but it should be. Here she is, she has nothing, she has no food, she is on her last bit of flour and oil. It is desperate, and yet she trusts, and she obeys. She brings Elijah the water and the food. That's an incredible act of faith demonstrated in the passage. Often when we read the Old Testament, especially the narratives, 
they are often in contrast as they come to us. Um, so as we just looked at those first six verses where we read of what is happening with Israel and how there is little faith and much idolatry, here we get a, a picture, we get an account of much faith. Here we get an account of someone who has very little of everything, food, water, really life. But much faith. In fact, what the writer of the book of the Kings is doing is showing Israel what God loves and what he desires, and that is obedience, and that is faith. And he has found it in none other than a Gentile widow, a woman who is poor and about to die because she has nothing. And the power of this passage that I want us to also see at this point is that God will go anywhere and he will go to anyone who has faith. That's all it takes. The God of the Bible is saying to Israel here, especially as, as God's people, right? I am not confined to one nation or to its borders. I will go to Gentile countries too, which is exactly where he's gone. I will go to the poor. I don't just go to the wealthy and the powerful. I will go to the marginalized as well. I will go anywhere I can find a morsel of faith. And in that place, my blessing will be given. And what is that for this widow and for Elijah? And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did, the, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Israel, friends, is supposed to have the widow's faith. Marked by obedience, but they do not. But where God finds it, his blessings flow even in Gentile places, and that's the power in this passage. But it's power also for what we would consider the first audience to this book of Kings that we need to actually learn a little bit about. See, this, this book is telling the story of, of God's people in the northern kingdom. So this is well before 722 when that northern kingdom fell. But that's not who was reading this. And it's important for us to take that in consideration, especially when we do any type of Bible study, we should always ask, who's the first audience here? And as we do that type of work, we find out that the first audience here would be the Babylonian exile generation. Interesting. Who is that? Well, after the northern kingdom falls in 722, in 586, the southern kingdom falls. By judgment, God sends in Babylon to actually exile his people as the ultimate of curses for disobedience. And he takes the people and removes them from the, from the, from the, from the land, which would be the, the worst thing that could ever happen to you because it signified that you no longer were in the presence of God because you weren't physically in the land. And so this book, First and Second Kings, really one book, the book of Kings, was written and given by somebody in that Babylonian exile generation for the people in the Babylonian exile generation. And as we think about that, what does that have to do with this passage? We'll come back to the, the original audience in the weeks to come. But what God is trying to tell those in Babylon, those who have lost their land, who have lost perhaps family members, their wealth due to the idolatry of the land, that they are slaves again actually by these people, and at the mercy of a Babylonian king, what could a Gentile widow, po widow possibly say to them? It says to them this, his grace and his love will never run out. 
like oil and flour in a jar. In other words, I'm the God who will go anywhere. I'm not, not, not close to these borders. I'm the God who will go anywhere faith is exhibited. Think about that from the term, from the point of view of somebody who is in that Babylonian captivity, who has been exiled from this land. In other words, God is saying, I will not only go anywhere into anyone who has faith, right? I'm also saying there is always time to turn it around. And what is that, friends? That's grace. It's grace. God is saying, trust me in this moment, right? Come back to me, right? Come back to the covenant that I made. Babylon, as we'll see, especially next week, has no power over me. I am the true God, not Baal or Babylon. It doesn't matter what land you're in. I'm the God of all creation. Would you trust me? Look what I did for Elijah. Look what I did for the widow. With a morsel of flour and oil, I will do the same with just a morsel of faith. That's the power in this passage. Certainly for this first audience, but also for us as we think about that in our own lives. Like, what does God desire? He doesn't desire our status, our wealth. He doesn't desire even our works. What does he want? He wants our faith. Faith that, that is marked out by obedience of following him, but, but he, wants, he wants our hearts. And the same is true for his people here. Would Israel return to him to find out just how gracious he is? Well, just for time, this is, the, this is the power in the passage. We saw the problem, which is the idolatry of Israel. We see the power in the fact that God's grace will extend anywhere and to anybody would they obey, even those who are in exile, as we just learned about the original audience to whom, to where this letter was written or this book was written. But let's now finish with the promise in this passage <clears throat> with our time. If we go to the, the last section there, verses 17 to 24, um, as we look at this, and I'm just going to be honest, it, it comes as a bit of, as a, of a surprise. Um, and it, maybe you felt the same way as you were reading this, right? It's, it's, as we just looked at in this previous section, we just held up the faith of this widow, right? And we, we look at Elijah's faith as well, and we see God's provision for these people because they're obeying. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, when we get to verse 17, we find out, that her son is dead. And this is what she says in verse 18. She said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause my death of my son. By any account, this is not how the story is supposed to go. The woman believed and therefore all should go well with her, right? May this be time for us to pause given our own circumstances that having God's favor and being within his promises doesn't mean that hardship doesn't come to us, right? But before we press that too far, one of the things we're going to see a lot of in this series are miracles. And miracles are important because they don't actually show up in every single section of the Bible. There's really about three major sections that miracles show up in. And Elijah and Elisha is one of those. And one of the reasons for miracles, right? They're not arbitrary, but one of the reasons for them is, is both to give credit to God's messenger, which would be Elijah here, but also they're, they're for redemptive purposes. They're to bring forward to an audience that perhaps is way out of line, but also in the worst of circumstances, kept, held captive in Babylon to be reminded of who the God is that they serve. 
Raymond Dillard puts it this way, God's way of testifying to the truth of his word, miracles accredit God's messenger. Miracles are, sorry, God's way of testifying to the truth of his word. They are also what accredits his messengers. At this point, both the miracle of the flower and oil and even in the resurrection of the son's widow, as we'll see, tells us that Elijah is in fact God's messenger and that his words of blessing are true where faith is found. Going back to the text, let's look at it one last time. Verse 19, and he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing uh, her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, in your mouth is true. So God is not only testifying to the truth of his word to Elijah, which is what miracles do, but he is also accrediting him to those around him, the widow here. That Elijah is in fact God's prophet and that he should be listened to. But what does this have to do with promise, which is this last point? Yes, as we'll see next week, God is showing who the true God is by certainly having power over life and death. He is showing uh, that Baal is not the true God and we're gonna learn all about Baal next week. In fact, where the widow lives, as we'll see um, here in Zarephath, right, where God sends Elijah, this is actually the home of Baal. <laughs> so we're going to see that even in his geography, he's actually sending um, his prophet to the place that is really Baal's home turf in the Phoenician region, uh, just to show that Baal has no power, no real power, because Baal isn't a real God. I am the true God. But more on that next week. What's the point this morning for this point? The promise in the passage is the message it sends to Israel. An extremely idolatrous nation who does not deserve God's mercy or grace or kindness, but only his wrath that says, if I will do this for a Gentile woman and her son, if I will raise them to new life, if I will provide for them all that they need, who I have no covenant promise with, what would I do for you? My treasured possession, as he calls them in Exodus. If I am the God who is able to bring life where there is only death, can't I do the same to you, O Israel? Certainly in the physical sense if God wants to, but what is he pointing at even through this miracle? It's the spiritual sense. It's, it's the spiritual life that he will bring about to his people. Would you return to me in faith, he cries out. Trust my word to you and live that faith out. By what? Removing the altars, removing the other gods. Stop looking to alliances with other nations for security and look only to me, the one to whom all security lies. This is what he's saying to his people. And I'm not trying to jump here yet, but, but we could take all of that for us this morning in the ways that we go outside what God has provided, right, to look for security, to look for the things that our heart really out of fear thinks that this will bring the security and the hope and the promise that I long for. 
And God has given it all to us. He's given it all to his people and his promises, but he's given it all to us in Jesus, this post-Easter service. We have everything. They have everything. But what is it that they need that we might need as well as we land this plane? And I'll come back to where we started at the beginning. We need grace to persevere. We need grace to persevere. See, the promises that, that, that God that gives him, even, even as we, we continue in this series, right, they're, they're not going to see the fulfillment of those promises, they're going to get miracles, which I think a lot of us may think that we might want. They get miracles of redemption, but they're not going to get the real promises. They're only going to get glimpses of it in Elijah as he, what, stretches himself, for example, over the boy. You'll notice that when I read it. Three times to save his life. It is an offering. Elijah is essentially saying, take me, take me. But God doesn't take Elijah because this son... The son of the widow, right, is not the one who can alone atone for our idolatry. And that's where the gospel meets us in Kings. The son of the widow can't atone for the unfaithfulness of Israel. It will be another son. It will be God's son. It will be Jesus, the prophet who will stretch himself out over a cross saying, Take me, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in that act, Israel and the whole world will know that the promises of God are still true. And the same is true for us this morning. Just as the people we meet in the Old Testament are the same people, although their culture is different, um, just as the God in the Old Testament is the same as the God in the New Testament, he is the same today. Our hearts are no different than Israel's hearts but thankfully, God's grace and his mercy is no different either. Jesus will come to whoever and wherever faith exists. No matter your past, no matter your present, he will come to bring life to what is spiritually dead, which is our heart, so that his promises remain true. Why? Because that's who he is. He's the one true God. And as I alluded to earlier, as we see so much, even, even in sending the drought, sending Elijah is a taste of his grace to his people. Why? Because he wants their hearts. And that's what he wants from you too this morning. He wants all of you. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your, your brains. He doesn't want your looks. He wants you. And would that compel us in whatever direction we need to move to offer our obedience, to offer our trust to him. So I'll come back to that first question this morning. What do you need this morning? You've got everything, but what do you need this morning? Where are you? Even in a post-Easter Sunday when we are reminded that we have all of the promises in Christ, what do you need? And it's probably the same thing Elijah and the widow needed. It's probably the same thing that, the, the, that Israel that is held captive in Babylon reading his needs. It is grace to persevere. And if you're willing to come back, which I hope you are, that is what we're going to find as we look through the life of Elijah and Elijah. It is grace to persevere. It is knowing that in light of having all of the promises of God be, be true in Jesus Christ, life is still hard. Things still come up. Faith is weak at times. Right? Circumstances aren't always what I want them to be. Lord, give me your grace provide for me 
in the ways that will allow me to persevere. And here's the good news. God will provide that grace. He's gonna provide it for us here in just a second as we come to this table. But you know what's better than God just providing that grace for us? It's actually meeting him and knowing that, that his grace that comes to us, just like the jar of oil and the jar of flour, that it is a grace that is provided to us that never, ever runs out. And as his people, he is calling us to give ourselves to him, to trust him more and more, that we may come to him and know the blessings of what it means to be his people. Would we run to him over and over and over again? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in chapter 17 as we begin this series and as we look at some of the context and the background surrounding your people Israel and as we think about their hearts and we recognize the same things in our hearts. We look at the things that you're promising them and the same things that you promise us. They're very similar, although the cultures are different. So we ask that you would give us grace to persevere where we find ourselves this morning. Whether that's a fresh taste of your goodness to us as we meet with you this, with God's people on Sunday or throughout the week in various ways, or if we're feeling very much like this widow that we are literally about to go make our last meal. In some ways, all, has, all is lost. Would you remind us that that's not true? Would you point us to the cross where we see Jesus stretched out for us as we saw last week, that all will go well because of what he has done. Would you give us fresh faith to trust him and to believe in him? And would you give us your grace, a grace that never, ever runs out. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.